Good morning. Would you uh, open your Bibles to the book of Proverbs, chapter 29? Happy Mother's Day. Uh, happy anniversary to my wife. This is our 23rd wedding anniversary today. So, so. So. Kids got her cards. Wes made sure that the dog got her a card. It's all... Proverbs 29, verse 7. Today I want us to think about power and authority. I want us to think about the wielding of power and authority. This is very relevant when it relates to mothering or parenting and children. It's also relevant just when we talk about women. Uh, If you need a less abstract thesis for this message this morning, one of the ways you could think about this is uh, a sermon about how not to raise a bully. But there's a bunch more going on besides that. So Proverbs 29.7 says, A righteous man knows the rights of the poor. A wicked man does not understand such knowledge. So let's talk about what's happening in this passage. A, a righteous man knows the rights of the poor. A wicked man does not understand such knowledge. One of the things presupposed when Proverbs talks about the poor is that they are weak. They are weak because they lack the resources to defend themselves, right? So in Bible times, it wasn't uncommon to have servants who would fight for you, a little tiny militia that you would use, kind of your own Blackwater, you know, uh, your own little private army. Uh, it wasn't uncommon for that. Obviously, if you were wealthy, you could fortify your city much better. Uh, the truth is, is that wealthy people have more friends. Proverbs talks about that consistently. Friends, you know, with, with quotes around it. But the poor in the book of Proverbs are seen as kind of mostly about being weak, about unable to defend themselves in particular ways. And this is still true today. We'll talk more about that in a moment. So this verse presupposes that you know that, that the poor are thought to be weak. And what this verse is saying is that the wicked man will exploit the weakness of the poor because the wicked man believes that might makes right. Right? The wicked man believes that might makes right. Now, we see this all the time in our culture, and we see it across both political spectrums. You know, when a local government uh, exercises eminent domain on a woman's house so they can put a, yet another strip mall in, yet another crucial strip mall, you know, they're, they're using power over someone to take what that person doesn't want to voluntarily give. When a lead mine in the U.S. is closed down by the EPA and reopens in, say, Bolivia, because there is no EPA there, this is the wicked exercising power over the weak. When, when, when a small-town bakery is sued because they won't put two dudes on the top of a cake, this is the exercise of power. This is the exercise of large power over Little power when a nursing home neglects its residents but cashes their Medicare checks. This is another example of the wicked using power over the weak. I mean, you could take this further. You could talk about how the way that so many municipal court systems are set up to inflict far more damage on those that are poor than those that are wealthy. In many respects, today, this verse is true about being weak when you're poor simply because you can't afford good lawyers. And it seems like the whole world is tilting toward 
lawyering equaling strength. Uh, it used to be you'd have an army of dudes with swords to protect your stuff, and now if you're wealthy, you have an army of lawyers. The poor back then couldn't afford dudes with swords. The poor today can't afford an army of lawyers. You see this all the time, this idea of power being exerted over the poor to take what they have. But honestly, it's not just only about the poor and the wealthy. It's really more about this idea of using power to take something from someone else. Simply put, if a large group of people decide to vote to take the money of a small group of people, you could call it taxes, you could call it voting, but it's the same idea. It's a large group of people deciding that they have the right to take the money of a smaller group of people. This is all about power dynamics. And the fact that politically we have two sides that do this equally and argue with each other, that should be, you should see that for the sham that it is. Because it's all about the abuse of power, the improper wielding of authority. So what Proverbs 29.7 is talking about is that wicked people understand when they have one up on us, when they have one up on someone weak. And if that weak person has something they want, then wicked people will see nothing stopping them from taking it. But the proverb says, the righteous man will recognize that that poor person has rights. Well, what are we talking about with rights? What, what is the righteous man seeing? Well, the righteous man is careful not to encroach on the poor and the weak, even though they're vulnerable, even though they can't defend themselves, they won't exploit their weaknesses. Why? Simply put, the wicked see weakness, the righteous see invisible power behind the weakness. So the wicked look at someone who has no power and all they see is someone who has no power. The righteous person sees an invisible power behind that weakness and they respect it. And by invisible power, I'm referring to God's power. Specifically, let's talk about the poor for a minute. Proverbs 14.31 says, Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. See, it's not that when you oppress a poor man, there doesn't appear to be any consequences. But the Bible assures us that there's someone who defends the poor with his power. There's an invisible power behind what we see as no power. Proverbs 17.5, whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. Psalm 140, verse 12, I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and will execute justice for the needy. So why does the righteous man not encroach on the poor? Why does the righteous man not take from the needy, from the weak? Because he knows that the Lord has power behind their weakness. The Lord is backing those people up. He is with the afflicted, and he will execute justice for the needy. In terms of righteousness and wickedness, it kind of comes down to this. The wicked only see the power they can see, and the righteous see a power that they can't see. And this is just kind of basic stuff about what it means to either be a believer or not, whether it means that you're, whether you have saving faith or don't, it's this real, this question of what do you see beyond what you can see? 
Specifically, what do you see about God's power? Romans 1 frames it that way. What do you see about God's power that you can't see with your eyes? Righteous people believe that if you take from the poor, God will punish you because God defends the poor. If you respect the rights of the poor, they believe, God will reward you. Proverbs 28, 27. Whoever gives to the poor will not want, but he who hides his eyes will get many a curse. Proverbs 22, 9. Whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed, for he shares his bread with the poor. You see these two views of power coming into shape? It's not Republican or Democrat. It's really just saved or not saved. It's, it's really just wicked or righteous. One eye sees a weak person and all that they can be exploited for. Another eye sees a weak person and with faith sees God standing right there with them and says, well, I don't want to mess with that guy. He's got God on his side. The wicked see through a lens of immediate power. Do I have more power over this person? And if so, then what they have can be mine. Now, just as an aside, this is why secularism, the shooting of the moving of God out of our culture and out of our politics is terrible for the poor. The poor have no good reason to be respected or cared for, except that they have rights given to them by God. Being a secular nation is a surefire way to make the poor suffer more. Because the only reason to respect the weak, let me replace the word poor with weak. Being a secular nation is the surefirest way to make sure the weak suffer more. Because as we transition away from this view of a power behind the weakness, and we see only power for power's sake, might makes right, you can bet that the weak are going to get it in the nose. That's just how our culture's moving. And wicked people, their, their understanding of all of this is rooted in their understanding of God. I've been studying power and authority in scriptures, and one of the things you can see is that this view of the poor translates to their view of God. Or maybe, it, it, maybe you could say it derives from their view of God. Because how do the wicked respond to the God's slowness to judgment? Right? In, the, in the scriptures, they say, the wicked use this excuse. God is slow to judgment. So that means he's, he's irrelevant. Right? I don't see the power right here, right now, and therefore... That power, it's invisible and therefore it's impotent. So if you wanted to look up other passages on your own time, you could look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 4. I'm sorry, 2 Peter 3, 4. Uh, Psalm 73, Romans 1, 18 through 21. These are passages that talk about an unbeliever's heart toward an invisible God. Their inability to see power that isn't seen. In particular, their, their, their inability to conform their lives around a power and a judgment that isn't here right now. Right? I, I took my fingernail off this uh, yesterday with a drill. And, uh, and I know not to do that again. <laughs> right? Uh, it was an immediate consequence. I, I, was, I had my finger down too, too close to the screw. I was pushing down with all my body weight. Uh, applause or what, laughter, all my body weight. And it slipped off the drill, slipped off the screw head and went right down and just took my whole fingernail off. 
And I know now not to do that. Any idiot would know now not to do that. It's the, it's, that's the fool, right? The fool understands those correlations, okay? Stove is hot, touch stove, got burned. I understand the correlation. That's the fool's, that's the level of a fool's reasoning. The wise person would have said <laughs> in advance, that finger is too close to that drill. <laughs> Something could happen here, right? The, the, the wise person is able to see a judgment that is coming. A consequence that is coming, right? That's, that's the basic idea of looking at the world through faith, is to see a judgment that is coming and a reward that is coming. But wickedness doesn't see the world that way. Wickedness just says, well, if it's not hurting me right now, it must be okay. If there are no consequences right now, it must be okay. If no one really will object, if I ignore this poor person or I use them, if no one really objects to that right now, then it must be okay. Now, hopefully you can see that this is an unsustainable way to run a society. Right? This idea of I only respect power that is immediate, this idea of uh, might makes right is a terrible way to run society. And the truth is, is that you will reach as a culture some critical mass where you've got more people that way than the other way, and then you've got a problem. This is, let me be clear about this, this is our cultural trajectory no matter which president is in office or no matter which R's or D's are in Congress. This is the trajectory of our culture, and it has nothing to do, really, with politics. It has far more to do with what? Parenting, right? Far more to do with parenting than it does with politics. If you're looking for a human way to address this particular issue, you'd have much more success looking at it from a parenting perspective. We have created an origin story, by the way, before I move on to talk about parenting. We've created an origin story that reinforces the might makes right, right? Survival of the fittest is an origin story that reinforces might makes right. So our culture is 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 you know on a on a fast train in this direction. And I'm concerned about that. I'm also just concerned about the glory of Christ. And I know full well that a lot of this comes back to how power is wielded in the home. How power is wielded in the home. So uh, if you if you've got your Bibles open still to Proverbs twenty nine, look at verse fourteen. I'm going to read from 14 to verse 18. If a king faithfully judges the poor, his throne will be established forever. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. When the wicked increase, transgression increases, but the righteous will look upon their downfall. Discipline your son and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. Where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. But blessed is he who keeps the law. So I'm going to work through and do an exposition of these verses. It doesn't always feel like the the flow of a a chapter in Proverbs is connected. Sometimes it feels like popcorn, like, you know, it each is its own thing. 
this one definitely has a structure to it. And I think if you really started reading Proverbs looking for structure, you'd see it more often. We definitely have structure here. I read from uh, verse 9 earlier dealing with the very same thing that verse 14 deals with. This idea that God blesses or judges us depending on how we treat the, war, the poor or the weak. Verse 14, if a king faithfully judges the poor, his throne will be established forever. So see the connection there? Uh, even though the poor has no power to repay the king, God will back up the poor and reward the king for caring for the poor. That's what we've just been talking about, this idea of a power behind weakness. Now, verse 15 is pointing us in a direction of parenting. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. This will be our primary text as we progress. So you go from a cultural statement about poor and weak and strong and rich to a statement about the wielding of authority in the home. And then you go back in verse 16 to a cultural focus. When the wicked increase, transgression increases but the righteous will look upon their downfall. And then we go from a cultural statement back to a statement about the home. Discipline your son, and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. And then we go back to a cultural statement. Verse 18, where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint, but blessed is he who keeps the law. So let's break some of this down. Let's make sure we understand a few things. Number one, we're still dealing in these categories of wicked and righteous. Right? That's, that's still the basic vocabulary of these verses, the, the question of wickedness and righteousness. Uh, number two, we see this implied connection between the home and the culture. that keeps going back and forth. And number three, we see that the righteous use of power affects both the home and the culture. The righteous use of power affects both the home and the culture. Here's what I think we've got here. I think we've got a basic sketch, a very abbreviated playbook that gives us a general sense of what the home should look like, specifically what the use of power in the home should look like. What the use of power in the home should look like. And I just want to create two categories. We'll, we'll talk about them more. But... Specifically, I think what we see here is the use of soft power and the use of hard power. Soft power and hard power. We'll, we'll get into that more in a minute. The first thing we need to understand is that if our culture has any hope, if, if, if our kids have any hope, they're going to need to find wisdom. We know, if you've read the book of Proverbs or even the book of Psalms, that the fear of the Lord is intertwined inexorably with wisdom itself. Repeatedly, we see that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So I want you to think about that, but then also look at verse 15 and see this. The rod and reproof give wisdom. Hold on a second. Which is it? Does the fear of the Lord give wisdom or does rod and reproof give wisdom? Well, humanly speaking, we see that there is a connection between the home and the use of power and our understanding of God's power. We see that the way that, we, that power is wielded in the home will inform our understanding of God's power, of both hard and soft power. Specifically, we see that the rod and reproof teach us wisdom. They give us wisdom. As kids, the rod and the reproof give us wisdom. Now, I know corporal punishment's an extremely unpopular idea, and that even talking about it gives all sorts of possible objections. 
Uh, but that's why they pay me the big bucks. So I'm going to say a few things with some level of decisiveness. And if you disagree, talk to me afterward. The first one I would say is this. We must always be careful uh, of second-guessing the use of hard power in our home. It's not that all hard power is righteous. Of course not. Of course it's not. But friends, we're beginning to buy into a lie that says that if I don't feel loved, then I wasn't loved. Right? It, it It allows the person who's being disciplined to evaluate the, the skillfulness of the discipline. Right? I don't feel loved means that the person who was doing whatever has failed in our culture. Right? That, and that, that is such a dangerous place to go because here's, here's where that winds up. Or maybe this is where it starts. I don't feel loved because God didn't do what I wanted him to do. I don't feel loved because God dealt me a hard hand. I don't feel loved because God has been hard on me. And therefore, when my parents or whomever are hard on me, I also don't feel loved. And my feeling loved is sort of the rule for both God and for those in my life. And, and so, so what I want to say is hard power gets a bad rap. Corporal punishment gets a bad rap. Using authority gets a bad rap because in our culture today, we've allowed this evaluation, did I feel loved, to, be, to reign supreme over all other factors. So don't freak out that we're talking about this. There, of course, are boundaries, and there are, of course, uh, ways that you can screw this up, many ways that you can screw this up. But let's also realize that a bunch of the hysteria related to the use of hard power is rooted in people who couldn't love God because he isn't exactly a softie. Okay, so let's talk about this. I'm not going to say that you must absolutely spank your children, but I'm going to come close because I think the Bible comes close. Proverbs 13, 24. I just, I just picked one verse out of many that talk about this. Proverbs 13, 24. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Now, I want to say one thing about this. You could go to the point of saying that the rod is just one form of discipline and that it doesn't work for every kid. And that's true. That's true to a point. You know, Wes, when he would just become hysterical when he knew he would get a spanking and he would it would it, he would just become hysterical and he would he would try to punch me. He would start freaking out. And he had this classic phrase that he would use to try to talk to, to get to talk out of a out of a spanking. He would say, Dad, I sinned and fall short. <laughs> I sinned and fall short, Dad. And that would be his way of like thinking, I'm going to give the preacher some of his verses back and, and uh, you know, he'll, he'll, he'll be easy on me. You know, not every one of our children found, was, was as benefited by spankings, but every one of our children was spanked. None of our children, I think, were spanked excessively, not even often, but all of them experienced this rod that the book of Proverbs refers to. We intermixed with other things. We we changed up the way we did it. We learned. We grew. We did it wrong sometimes, heaven forbid. There were times when we spanked our kids and they didn't deserve it. And they are actually not institutionalized. Right? They are actually 
productive citizens who love Jesus and their parents. And I don't take credit for that, by the way. So this idea of, of substituting other things in for the rod, I guess, you know, I guess so. Here's what I would say. Just make sure you're still saying in the category of hard power and a category of soft power. That's what this verse is commending. Look again at verse 15. The rod and reproof. That's what I want you to see. The rod and reproof. The Bible has a category for hard power and the Bible has a category for soft power. And wisdom, verse 15 says, comes through the proper wielding of both hard power and soft power. The rod and reproof give wisdom. In fact, if you have an actual Bible in front of you and you write in it, uh, if you would circle the word uh, and and go down to verse 19, verse 19 says, By mere words, a servant is not disciplined, for though he understands, he will not respond. So, parenting pro tip, I know many of you are better parents than me, and I really mean that, I'm not just saying that, but, but pro tip from one parent to another, you need both. You need hard power and you need soft power. And don't start confusing these so much that hard power becomes a good talking to or a timeout. That's not hard power. That's not what this is saying. Verse 19 says that you can't only give people a good talking to and expect that this all works out. So just so we're clear, we don't get too fancy for our own good as we're thinking through parenting. The rod is not reproof and reproof is not the rod. This is a matter of using both. And as I said before, and I may fail ultimately to make this connection for you, but I truly believe the Bible shows that the way we show power in our homes informs the way people use power out in the real world. So let's commit to this idea of both hard power and soft power. Reproof is not the rod. The rod is not reproof. You need both. Now, once we decide that we're going to do some kind of corporal punishment, once we decide that that ought to be kind of part of our toolkit, we've got to make some basic choices. I won't talk about all those this morning, but just a few. When should I go hard power? Again, that's a very difficult question to discern. But the point is not so much you've done X to deserve hard power. And this is the basic thing that I think is, is probably the takeaway related to this. We're not talking about using hard power when it's especially deserved. We're talking about using it consistently as a seasoning in your parenting. We're not saying draw a line in the sand and say, if you cross this line, you get reproved. And if you cross this line, you get the rod. That's not how we're, that's not this. This is about the, the use of power. This is about the, this, the use of authority in the home as a means of teaching your children about power and authority. So, so it's not so much you've done X to deserve this, although that's the way you want to do it, that's fine. It's really more about being consistent in having both of these displays of power in your parenting. But basic, but bottom line, whenever you do it, you shouldn't do it when you're angry. And there are all kinds of cultural moments where you'd be an idiot to do it. You know, I can just see somebody at some kind of, you know, vegan book signing and their kids disobeying and they decide to spank them. That would be a bad time to spank your child. So, so you're probably not talking. This is important. I think this is, this, is, this is throughout Scripture. You're probably not talking about spanking your kids immediately when they disobey. 
Because this other concept we're trying to communicate is delayed power. We want our kids to see that not all consequences are immediate. Some consequences come hours later. Basically, what I'm trying to commend, and as it relates to Mother's Day, is this. There is a great deal of wisdom in wait till your father comes home. Seriously, there is all kinds of theological goodness in that phrase. Wait till your father comes home. There is so much pointing to the truth of who God is, the truth of how power and consequence work in this world. There's so much there. Now, I'll just tell you point blank. I think the Bible, God in his wisdom, has provided a complementarity of male and female so that both male and female display hard and soft power in their own ways, but that there is an accent on soft power with females and an accent of hard power with males. So that as your children are growing up, they see hard power and soft power from both mom and dad, but they see an accent on soft power from mom, and they see an accent on hard power from dad. This idea of wait till your father gets home is, I think, a huge, a huge game changer for our culture. It, is, it, it implies so much theological truth and it depends on a father who comes home. And it depends on a father who is not selfish when he comes home and says, I've already put in my eight. Leave me alone. I'll be in the basement with the recliner. Now, I'm prescribing or maybe describing at the very least this idea in which rod and reproof are held hand in hand in a marriage between a husband and a wife, one showing mostly soft power, one showing more of the hard power, and they're working together to teach this child wisdom. And you could say, if you wanted to poke holes in this, you could be like, well, what about single mothers? And what about moms who are Olympic ping pong players? They would be way better at spanking. And what about dads with no arms? Yes, granted. You got me there. Anytime we're going to paint a specific ideal of what we should be seeking, there will be exceptions to that specific ideal. The heart that seeks wisdom will work their way around those things, either personally or in conversation or so on. The heart that seeks, honestly, rebellion... Well, what will they do? They'll, they'll, they'll accuse this whole thing of being, you know, domineering, patriot, blah, blah, blah. I, I, I brought up the poor at the beginning because that's the whole trick. All the people who want to tell me that I'm being domineering are the ones stepping on the unborn and enslaving an entire minority class into a political system that hurts them. Right? So yes, I'm the bad guy. This idea of mom and dad exercising hard and soft power together communicates a lot about the nature of God and it, it teaches a child wisdom. And I want to argue that the absence of either of these two things is the equivalent of leaving a child to himself. That's what that verse says, right? You do the rod and reproof or you leave a child to himself. Those are the two options. So all rod and no reproof, you've left the child to himself. All reproof and no rod, you've left, your left the child to himself. 
And I want to take a moment, hit pause on the parenting conversation and talk to everybody in this room who's ever been disciplined by God. And I want you to see, we need the rod sometimes. And that is not God being cruel. That is God being a kind, loving, and engaged father. We will go through discipline. We will suffer hardship. We will experience God's rod. But that does not mean he is cruel. It means he is kind and he is giving you a heart of wisdom. So this idea of mom as soft power and dad as hard power primarily has some scriptural warrant. Hebrews 12.9, the discussion of God's discipline, points us back to our father's discipline. Right? It says, we all had earthly fathers who disciplined us. The expectation here is that the father plays a unique role in the hard side of power display. Proverbs 6, Proverbs 6, and this shows up all over the book of Proverbs, we see this statement. My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. And when you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk to you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is a light. And the reproofs of discipline are a way of life to preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Now, just to point out, we'll talk about hard power in a minute. Just to point out, moms, I hope you understand how many times in the book of Proverbs and elsewhere, this idea of mom's teaching comes into play. Forsake not your father's commandments, hard power. Forsake not your mother's teaching, soft power. Listen. Young men in this room are going to emerge into a world with a smooth-tongued seductress of of, of various forms. And it will be the ultimate soft power tease with a hard power smackdown if they fall for it. Moms, you have a God-given authority to be a reproofer in your home. To speak truth consistently to power to your children with, even if you're a single mom, let me just say this real quick, even if you're a single mom, wait till your dad comes home is absolutely true. Uh, we've, some of our best friends over the years have been single moms. God will have your back if you're a single mom. If God needs to come home, he will. If God needs to step in, he will. We've seen it a million times. Single moms trying to raise their kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord, letting God Bring the smack down when necessary. There is a faithfulness present in this passage. Faithfulness of God. So this is the idea. Rod and reproof, you need them both. Delayed corporal punishment is good. It teaches us about delayed consequences. Dad has a role. Mom has a role. And if we both work together in hard and soft power, we give wisdom to our children. Now, Let's talk specifically about how this affects mom. Verse 15 again. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself shames, brings shame to his mother. The word shame means to make pale, to remove vitality. Mothering is hard and exhausting, and there's a kind of weariness that comes from fruitfulness. Just the fact that God has blessed you, 
just filled your life with good things. You just could be tired because there's a lot of fruit to pick, and that's a good thing. But guys, there's another kind of weariness that comes from chaos. If your children are not being led well, if they're not being properly rotted and reproved, then they are probably exhausting. And I don't know, I think when we were older, we, we, we talked about this more often. I don't know how often young mothers have been told about this, that there's a tiredness that comes from just working the vineyard every day, and then there's a tiredness from working the asylum every day. And you aren't called to work in asylum. You are called to manage obedient children who do what they're told and who give you your space when appropriate. You are called to manage children who do what they're told, who obey. You'll still be tired. You just won't want to die. There's a difference, and I'm not the guy to I'm not the guy to extrapolate this, right? But let's do some Titus two work in this in this place, and and you can talk about it. There's a difference between I I'm running around with kids that have way more energy than me, and I'm running around with kids who don't respect me, and who use me, and who are disobedient. So, dads, the best gift I'm just going to tell you absolutely the best gift you can give your wife is to make one thing absolutely clear to your children every day of their life for all 18 to 27 years you have them. <laughs> and that is this. Dads, make this absolutely clear to your kids. This is my wife. She will be honored. She will be respected. And she will be obeyed the first time. And she will be given, listen, this is an innovation. She will be given at least one hour of alone time every day during which, you, during which time you will behave and not burn anything down. <laughs> Dads, if you could make that your goal, if you could make that the evaluation of your success as a parent, are these children honoring the bride that I've taken? Are they obeying? Are they giving her space? Do they understand that they need to give her space. And when she says go away, she means it. That's part of the obeying. Moms, you know that's okay to do, right? To say go away. Listen, dads, husbands, if your kids aren't behaving, then you are seriously tempting your wife to despair. And she won't tell you about it until there are pots and pans in the air. Until she is utterly frazzled. They outnumber her. They certainly have more energy than her. So every day you go home with a simple question for your wife. Did my children obey you? And if your wife doesn't give an enthusiastic yes, she may be tempted to spare the child the rod too. Look at her, and if she doesn't give you an enthusiastic yes, then cancel your evening plans and get busy ruling and subduing, guys. Those kids need to obey their mom. And they need to do so with immediacy and graciousness. Because God is with the weak, and because the vanity of our hearts doesn't want to believe that, when we are kids, we identify the weakest thing in the room and pick on it. And then we change our tune when the stronger thing comes in. And this is the equivalent of a fool touching the stove, not touching the stove. 
gaining wisdom is to say, I can't pick on the weakest thing in the room because though I can't see him, there's a stronger thing coming. And with him, he brings his fury. So I need to be nice to the weak thing because the strong thing is right around the bend. We're teaching our kids to understand non-immediate and invisible power. On a daily basis, your kids' first opportunity to treat the weak well is to be nice to mom. And I know I'm going to get all sorts of about that statement. That, But if you'd unplug the quicksand, the postmodern quicksand from your ears, you'd know what I mean. Uh, on a daily basis, we treat the weakest thing we know with the kindness and charity and love and respect because we believe in a God who has the weakest thing we know in his firm grasp. Now, practically speaking, this means when we see someone of less power as a family, the more deferential we are. When we see a disabled person, when we see a poor person, when we see, a, when we see an elderly person, we are in a moment of reverence because we know God is especially with that person. And we are kind and gracious and thankful for that person because there's an invisible power behind them. And if you mess with these people, God's going to mess with you. And if you bless these people, God's going to bless you. One last practical application. Parents, you've got to teach your kids to behave in public. This means doing what they say when you say, doing what you say when you say it, the way you say it. Very often, their acting out in public is guided by this knowledge that you can't do anything to them right now or that you won't. They're, they're showing that they don't actually believe in this concept of coming judgment. So let the judgment come. Have a conversation after the public moment that says, you took advantage of my busyness. You took advantage that I was oriented another way. You took advantage of the social conditions. And you did that so that you could get your own way. Well, it didn't work because here we are. I hope this is encouraging to you as a sense of, most importantly, I want husbands to love their wives. I want you to know there is a difference between tired and I've lost my will to live. And I want you to know that difference usually depends on whether your kids are obedient or unruly. I want you to see that hard and soft power displayed in the home present the truths of the gospel and the truth of God to your children. And that moms, here's what I really want you to hear. I want you to hear thank you in a totally non-patronizing way. You are farming our future. That's what you're doing. You're farming our future. You're raising up our, our future. Don't grow weary in doing good. Dads, don't make it hard for them to not grow weary in doing good. Do everything you can to make those kids love and respect your, their mom. Now, verse 17 says, Discipline your son, and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. Do you hear the gospel rhythms here? Discipline your son, and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. We have stored up wrath against God because we have, just like the fool, because we are fools, <laughs> just like the fool, We've, we've, we've said, well, God's so far away. He's invisible. I'll just do what I want. It'll be okay. Uh, and, and we are doomed as a consequence of that to the ultimate terrible wait till your father comes home. All right? In our sin, 
We have sinned against Almighty God, and God will one day judge every person in this room. He will judge them by the righteous standard of his holy law. And left to ourselves, all of us face eternal wrath, eternal hard power forever. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, and he disciplined the son on our behalf so that we could find delight in our heart and peace with God. Isaiah 53 says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The table that we have before us this morning is a table of invitation for those who have placed their faith in the disciplined son. The son who was disciplined on our behalf. The son who was disciplined on our behalf so that we could become less unruly. So that we could find peace with God and even self-control. Jesus was disciplined on our behalf to give us the grace of God we didn't deserve. So if you're here today and you're a believer in Jesus, I want you to come and partake of this table. And I want you to affirm the fatherhood of God as you partake of this table. God, you are a good father. God, you discipline, you, rot, you, you spank, and you reprove. But most importantly, you've done that to Jesus, the one perfect son, the one son who didn't have it coming gave it to Jesus so that you could be my father forever and I could experience your love. Let me pray for it. Jesus, thank you.